welcome to the Seattle Coffee Gear podcast. I'm your host, Pat, and joining me this week in the studio is Ariel. Hello. Uh, I'm really excited because this is our second in-studio recording with, like, the nicer microphone and Mm -hmm. not a ton of background noise the whole time. (laughs) Jake and I recorded one in here a while ago, not filmed, and it was like, we didn't even turn the lights on, so it was, like, super dark. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we were just hunched over the counter with the podcasting microphone. It was it was it was pretty uh it 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 felt like we were doing something we weren't supposed to be doing. Yeah. Just like in the okay, but why in this work? I don't know, because we didn't want to turn the big lights on and we didn't these lights were too blinding. Because I feel like you would have to, to record to, since I feel it wasn't like you'd have to whisper if it was dark. No, no, but we couldn't get over the boom of people in the next room making coffee. Uh-oh. That came up a couple times and it was not uh, not the best. So yeah. it's better now when we have like everything set up and we're filming. So it gives some people the idea that maybe they shouldn't make a bunch of noise. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we're here to, we're going to talk a little more about coffee history because we had such yes. a good time last time. Um, and we're going to get into a little more of like... Um, sort of talk a little bit about cultivation techniques, mostly talk about like spread of coffee through the Middle East and into Europe and um, brew method and stuff like that. So it should be pretty cool, I think. Um, Before we get into it, though, is there anything that you've been enjoying coffee-wise in the last few weeks since we last chatted? Oh, just, um, well, I was actually lucky enough to get a hold of subtropical weather from onyx and i made cold brew sweet yes (laughs) yes that's awesome uh i also i can't remember now if i talked about this when i talked to jay class so apologies to people listening if they already heard me talk about this but i finally took one of the u kegs home oh how'd you like it, it turned it a lot mm-hmm. yeah it turns out the one that had the little plastic we had a behind the scenes we had a little plastic chip in one we had an you were loading. yeah it just um, kind of like it, it worked totally fine so it was, oh, okay. it was n- nothing so i i uh, i made um a some of our crew brew in it, mm-hmm. the Tonys, and it was really, really good as cold oh, nice. brew. I was kind of like not sure because I hadn't tried it in that mm-hmm. brew method before, but it turned out great. And I really like that thing. It's super cool. It's obviously not like designed for anything other than coffee technically, but yeah. you could nitro a lot of stuff in there. So I'm going to probably make some cocktails oh, this yeah. weekend in it. Probably do it should like, be pretty good. Like tea in there too. Yeah. And I'm realizing now, I think I did talk about this with Jake. So everybody gets here and get excited about it twice, but. Well, you know, if That's, you're excited about something. Exactly. Um, <laughs> I'm also that we have some new coffees that I think should still be available by the time people hear this from Olympia and Bluebeard. We're drinking one of them now. It's a Nicaragua that's I think is quite good. This one is um, really good. Yeah. It, it is actually like the way you brewed it. It's really fudgy. Yeah. Yeah. It's got uh, it's very rich. It's got like creamsicle note and mm-hmm. a fudge note. So keep an eye out for that if you are looking for coffee to order on the website uh, and we can get into chatting about coffee history. So I barely remember, I forgot to listen to that episode again today. I don't remember exactly where we left off. Neither do I. And I have a confession. I kind of have almost a phobia of listening to oh, the podcast that we record because I, I it's weird hearing my own voice because I sound like I'm 12. Sure. Well, I don't think you sound like you're 12, for starters. <laughs> um, but also I... Listen, I I don't have any problem listening to my own voice. I tried to be, I've tried and failed to be a musician when I was like in my early 20s. So I had to listen to myself performing a lot, both for live videos and when I would record stuff. And then I've done like 
podcasting for a long time and videos here. So I eventually got over the seeing myself and hearing myself and I'm fine with that now. Mostly it's that I don't listen to podcasts that I'm on ever because I already did it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so why would I take the time <laughs> to listen to the conversation that I participated in? Think. So we, what did we do? Oh, it was, um, Kind of the very beginning of coffee. So we started yes. with the Dancing Goats myth. Yes, we. Yes. Pr- that was the main... I think that's kind of where we... Yeah, that was yeah. the main piece of the conversation. Um, and um, then we didn't really get too far into, like, cultivation. And we were talking before we started recording, I did some research on early coffee cultivation, and it turns out that most of the cultivation techniques then are pretty similar to what we do now which yeah. is very cool because it kind of the, the coffee the there's from from a process processing perspective there's been a big boom of technology over the last mm-hmm. two to a couple decades but from a farming perspective coffee is largely farmed the same way and yeah. so still so largely done by hand which is really cool um i mean really cool of course as long as people are making a living at it and it's yeah. it's and, and not like stuck doing it but in 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 most of the cases with the roasters that we work with anyway that's what's going on you know, mm-hmm. there's there there's fair pricing that's happening uh and i think it's really neat um and for people who don't know uh coffee is typically grown at higher elevations and arabica coffee anyway exactly yes i should clarify yeah that that's kind of what we're talking about that's one thing i don't know that maybe you know the answer to and maybe is a better question for a later episode is i don't really know at what point Robusta and Arabica coffees, like, I don't know the history of each kind separately. Arabica is interesting because it's it's actually a hybrid mm-hmm. plant that requires incredibly specific growing conditions. So yeah. there's kind of like a, a parent plant to that. It's, um, and I'm probably going to butcher the pronunciation. It's like eugenoides or something yes. like that. So yes. it's eugenoides and Robusta that came together and made... A tasty little Arabica baby. Yeah. Yeah. And but Robusta, like purebred Robusta, was discovered after Arabica. That's what I thought. Okay. Yeah. So I I don't know. So that, that, that like, cross the Arabica happened naturally mm-hmm. on accident by those two plant varieties. Yes. Yeah. So I say all this to say that. The, the like early coffee cultivation that we're talking about is still Arabica coffee yep. that happened in Ethiopia um, and, and is sort of the, the basis for what we're discussing. And so the technique's very similar today, higher elevations. I don't know the, how in terms of like... Sorry. Oh, that's okay. I can pick it. I have it. I'm holding in my head where we were. <laughs> cool. I don't know uh, in terms of like other conditions, you know, shade. Were 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 coffee farmers then conscious of like shade growing coffee versus not and moisture content in soil and stuff yeah. like that? I that's more of a modern mm-hmm. uh, a thing that we kind of understand more from a modern perspective. But it also turns out that the places that it's almost like we never really needed to even know because yeah. <laughs> they were doing it right all around. Exactly. Well, it's you know, one of those things where you know back then you don't have the technology, so you just kind of have to watch and see what works. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. So, yeah, they'll either like plant more trees, like they'll modify a forest area, or they'll kind of clear it out and plant 
other things with it. Right. So things that you can get like lumber or like chocolate. I think they grow a lot of like chocolate in the same area. So it's sure. the concept of if it grows together, it goes together. And from a processing perspective, obviously early coffee was all pretty much natural processed. Yeah, because you couldn't do didn't anything have washing else stations. With it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um they didn't have a concept of I mean I'm sure that there were some that were technically kind of honey processed because of the mm-hmm. different points at which they <laughs> Just, would it was like an oopsie daisy. But yeah, exactly. Um so in that case in, in that respect, you know, it's very similar to natural processed coffee today. The the thing that I found and that is interesting is that um, Turkish coffee brewing was kind of like the way to brew coffee for mm. uh, hundreds of years into oh, yeah. the, the kind of propagation of coffee, which is interesting, I think. Yeah, Turkish coffee is definitely, definitely not, not an easy brew method. You have to babysit it. Yeah, and I think... The I don't have uh, like empirical research to back this up, but but I think the main thing is that back then they just didn't care that much about the precision <laughs> of it. I mean, I'm sure there are people who did, because yeah. it's human nature to get really into things and perfect it. But um, usually the coffee was ground by hand mm-hmm. using a mortar and pestle uh, from the research that I did, and then ground into just basically as fine a powder as could yep. be made so that it would dissolve. Uh, and and then, you know, you boil water, you boil the water with the coffee in it and stir it, and there you go. And yep. we know that to get the best flavor out of a brew method like that, you have to really be careful with it. But Yeah, it's a lot of heat management because um, it's not really, not quite to the boiling point, but the coffee itself, because it's so fine, it will kind of yeah foam up and so we know now we think of turk and you know again there were i'm sure people who got very good at it and mm-hmm. who were the ones they would have worked in the palace exactly yeah <laughs> but but you know your typical coffee drinker probably didn't get too concerned about the finer points of the flavor mm-hmm. um and that's kind of the brew method that spread throughout the middle east and um and coffee drinking throughout the middle east and then there was uh and it was it became popular less for the flavor and more for the caffeine the caffeine side. and i think the social aspect of it too sure yeah, yeah. which is uh it's just so interesting because um there were thousands of coffee houses just in Istanbul alone mm-hmm. you know, when when coffee started becoming incredibly popular. And then that Sultan Murad um, Fourth made coffee illegal because he could see that, you know, if, he, if you're if you're drunk, you're just happy and silly. But if you're like caffeinated and awake, you're discussing ideas with other people. Right. You know, he didn't like that. So he would go around disguised as a, an ordinary civilian, but he would carry around a hundred pound sword and if he caught you <laughs> that's it off you're chop off your head yeah can yeah. you imagine like you're just at like a Starbucks and <laughs> <laughs> well it's even funnier when you think about the people who would be wielding the swords in modern day society lots of very old people <laughs> walking around hundred pounds yes yeah. Um, yeah I mean I think it's interesting because in many cases um state leaders in this case this and you know later examples too of religious leaders who are really political leaders mm-hmm. the pope in medieval europe yeah, but i think was charles actually, and then charles the second yeah mm-hmm. uh, multiple instances and it's and a lot of times it was shrouded in well this is bad because it's mind altering and that's mm-hmm. an affront to god in some way like usually using religion as the argument yep. but the real reasoning being of course that it's a it's 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 a 
drink that brings people together and it encourages people to talk about their ideas and stuff. And that's mm -hmm. the real thing that I think a lot of these leaders were afraid of. So those stories are come up over and over and over again. And they're very interesting. I think um, when you look at the political context of like when they were happening, yep. but then a lot of, you know, coffee sort of spreads through Europe as um, there is sort of military conquests and people mm -hmm. are enslaved in the Middle East and brought into um, European society and kind of made to make the, the yeah. Make Bad coffee for the aristocracy. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. um, and 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 to provide a service to the bad people who have <laughs> enslaved them. Uh, and so it's pretty terrible. Like the story of coffee propagation is it sucks in a lot of ways. But yeah. uh, but that is kind of how, and that is why Turkish coffee and immersion brewing more generally kind of spread throughout Europe. And not always, you know, the the person. The, the working class person in Paris is not necessarily making their coffee going, oh, I'm using a Turkish coffee brewing method. It's just for a long time. Brewing yes. coffee was just you boil the coffee, you make the coffee fine and then you boil it in the water. Mm -hmm. You know, until Melita showed up. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, that was where a lot of my coming, I don't even exactly know when the filter was introduced. I was reading a little bit about that, but it was, I, I don't think that. It's still, I mean, in terms of overall history, I think it was in the 1800s. Yeah. Because um, there was Melita with, like, the, the blotting paper where she made, like, her own little... Yeah. Because she was tired of <laughs> getting coffee grounds in her mouth. And right. then there was the the siphon, which was invented by the Germans. Yeah. And that predates any kind of paper filter usage, correct? Or am I off? Uh, yes. So there's there's a couple of different... Siphon method. So it was invented by the Germans, and I think there was like a pipe with like a cloth wrapped around it, and yeah, that's how it would get filtered. Right. And then, and then the French version, which I th I think it was the French courtesan, actually mm -hmm. designed the the glass balloon version. And there's like a little round paper filter in there. Right. Yeah. 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 And so a lot of these brew methods are kind of developed. My understanding is as a way to just like reduce mess and try to find a way to make it more convenient mm -hmm. and easier. And easier to do in commercial settings as well, like yep. in cafes, because coffee shops are starting to pop up all over the, Europe as well. Yep. And uh, and 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 so that's also where we get espresso from over mm -hmm. time. Is obviously like developed in Italy, but also developed kind of simultaneously in France too. Like a lot of espresso techniques come from the French development of coffee as well, which I think is maybe not something that's as commonly known yeah, as it's... people would think. Mm -hmm. So coffee becomes a important beverage then also in uh, a political context during the French Revolution, hugely important to uh, people having places to go to talk about, again, that theme of like talking about, hey, this seems not great. And mm -hmm. what could we do to make this better? Let's uh, stay up all night and talk about it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and um, there's a distinct uh, divide between at this point, like some of the kinds of coffee that people are drinking too, because working class coffee, sort of pure coffee is pretty expensive mm -hmm. uh, during a time of not great economic prosperity for working class people. So that's where we start to get things like chicory blended coffee as well. Yeah. To kind of cut it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You have to cut it. And then that, and then coffee spreads 
around the world as empire spreads around the world, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's brought to lots of uh, other countries that have good climates for cultivating it. And Latin people, America. Yep. And people are, uh, unfortunately, again, forced to cultivate it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but, but one of the coolest, I think one of the coolest things for me about coffee as a good and part of why I find it really inspiring is the modern, this isn't true on every coffee farm in every, in, in every region, every origin, but so much of modern coffee cultivation is indigenous people kind of reclaiming this thing that was originally a pretty um, dark and brutal part of colonization and mm-hmm. making it into something really beautiful and sustaining for whole communities. Yeah, whole communities and then just generation after generation. So yeah. it, it's kind of gone from something that was brought against their will to something where yeah like you said they've taken it back and it's become like their life's work yeah yeah so it's really the the way that that coffee cultivators take pride in and and, you know processing stations take pride in the work that they do and then yeah obviously there are still problems um that 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 prevent equitable coffee trade in certain regions and through certain companies, but there are so many exporters that are now getting more on board with like fair pricing and mm. not just not just things like fair trade, which is a good stepping stone to even fair pricing, but even negotiating specific pricing agreements with different producers. Uh, and you get kind of the coffee propagation that we have now, which mm-hmm. is which is cool. Yeah, and it's you know making sure that the people who are harvesting it are one of age to harvest it mm-hmm. which that is a huge issue is there's a there is a lot of child labor involved in coffee and if you don't go to the right roaster or the right company you know it's it's something that you could be participating in with not without even really knowing about it yeah but that's that's one of the nice things about like onyx especially is they are so transparent about everything yeah it's getting better and better with a lot of roasters you can you know i write I, I go with pretty much every coffee we bring in. I do sort of a trace. I don't want to, it's not like a professional trace, but I try to go through and read mm-hmm. about the whole process. And so more and more you're able to do that. It's pretty rare that we bring a coffee in and I can't find the specific farms that it comes from. Yeah. Um, but uh, sometimes you have to do the digging yourself. Certain roasters like Onyx do uh, make that information super easy to find from their websites, which is very, very cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, Going back to sort of the history aspect of it, what's funny, and I think something that a lot of people don't realize, is brew methods that we look at, like uh, drip brewing, for example, that's pretty American. Yeah, because um, they don't, they really don't do drip in Europe. Like, not really. When when I went to uh, when I went to Italy, if you wanted black coffee, they make you an americano. Yeah, yeah, uh, and it's interesting because there's people here that are like. Obviously, coffee percolators predate drip brewing, mm-hmm. but mid-century, drip brewing becomes more and more popular and becomes kind of the most popular brewing method for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think now espresso is probably more popular again because probably. of companies like Starbucks kind of bringing coffee from that you go get from a cafe around the, the country mm-hmm. more. But they, Well, you know, they do... Kind of say that Howard Schultz was the father of the latte in America. Yeah. You know. 
Um, but but for, for a long time, I mean, drip coffee was I didn't even know that espresso existed until I was mm-hmm. you know, like a teenager. Yeah, because we always just drank drip coffee. At home. And I love a good cup of drip. Not that I drank drip coffee really before I was a teenager. <laughs> but when I saw my parents drinking was drip coffee, I thought my, coffee was nasty until I was like college aged, actually. My mom, actually, she she was always kind of like ahead of the curve so she was the one who actually introduced me to espresso so i was making her lattes and cappuccinos when i was like eight very nice <laughs> and then she'd let me have like a little bit yeah no i i didn't experience a lot i was probably like high school age but anyway yeah so drip coffee is something that um that that was the primary brewing method here for a long time and it's led to I think an interesting roasting culture here. And I was talking about this recently because I was working on a project where someone was asking me about like specialty roasters kind of around the world. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I just don't really know of any, I know the Italian coffee roasting brands and I know some of the larger European brands outside of Italy, but I don't, and looking into it, it's kind of, it's not like there's no specialty roasting anywhere else in the world, <laughs> um, oh, yeah. but it's, it is pretty, there's not a lot of places that have the same concentration of roasters that the United right. States has. That, that's true. Um, I was going to say something. Oh, <laughs> there was one episode of uh, somebody feed Phil on Netflix and there was a South African roaster slash cafe that I, it's really cool. They're called Truth Coffee. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've heard of them. Yeah, and they're like a steampunk themed. Yeah. And then there was one friend that I met, and she's from the Netherlands, and they're... Yeah. Yes. That's the other place that's got some level. There's yeah. a lot of coffee. There. They take their coffee. It's really lightly roasted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah, and then, of course, there are roasters that roast coffee hyper locally in coffee cultivating countries mm-hmm. obviously like i mean ethiopian coffee culture is oh, extraordinarily yeah. rich and incredible but it's less the sort of like you go to their website and order a bag mm-hmm. and it's more the you go to a specific cafe or yep. you go to a specific person's house that they roast their own and stuff like that mm-hmm. so you don't have the same degree of like specialty coffee you don't have like roasters competing in the same way that you do here, which is kind of interesting. I think it's interesting that we ended up being the country where that seems to happen the most. Yeah. It is definitely a, an interesting concept. Yeah. And, and roasting for, to sort of achieve different kinds of flavors and to work with different harvests in different ways is something that you don't see in a lot of other places. And I think it's just because we've collected drip is kind of a largely American thing. We've collected so many brew methods from so many different places. Yeah. So people make <laughs> coffee so many different ways here compared to play even in like Europe and Japan and, and, and other places that are large coffee consumers. And then also those places consume a lot of instant coffee too, okay. which is not really something we do as much here. So I think yeah. that plays into it as well, which is, you know, instant coffee is, uh, much easier to make. <laughs> much easier to make, and I think also, well, it's a lot cheaper because, you know, it's mostly Robusta. Right, yeah. You know, but I will say that it does play very well with the brew methods that are available there. So, like, I can't imagine having, like, a Vietnamese coffee with, like, a single-origin light roast. It just wouldn't taste the same. You need something that's, like, exactly like, yes. in your face to cut 
through the uh, the condensed milk that they put in there. Yes, totally. Um, which is also not an original. I can't remember now who it was off the top of my head when I was doing the research. But um, also worth noting, if you adding milk and sugar to coffee was a fairly fairly late addition. It was like 17th century, I think, hundreds of years after coffee yeah. was being. Brood. It's definitely like a more European thing because Europeans had like a sweet tooth. So totally. it was like that with coffee and then it was also like that with chocolate. I want to say it was in France that it first started happening. Of course. I, I could I could be misremembering, <laughs> but I believe that that's where it was. And it was very much a like, yes, of course. <laughs> uh, naturally, that's just, where. just, you know, cream and sugar and butter. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't see the butter <laughs> thing, but I know that people do add butter to I coffee. Uh, I think it's supposed to be healthy, but... Yeah, one time, actually, our product, one of our product guys put butter in coffee, and I had some, and it was... Uh, Not great, I would guess. Well, it's, it tasted fine. It's just, you know, coffee always has a little bit of oil. Mm-hmm. This was like, what if way more oil? <laughs> and don't get me wrong, I put butter in everything. That's why my cooking sure. tastes so good, but in liquid <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean, it was kind of almost like if you poured, like olive oil into your coffee sort oh. of. <laughs> which you know uh i'm sure that there are certain reasons why it would be could be better for you but yeah not for me yeah no. um, thank you yeah so i mean we can get into more specific stories in later episodes but i think that covers like it's a pretty good rundown of how coffee kind of spread around the world the answer mm-hmm. is unfortunately through really awful empires yep. <laughs> forcing it on people and then bringing it for themselves because they wanted to drink it, <laughs> which it sucks and is unfortunately the source of a lot of uh, cultural spread from early history. But we have to live with it because we can't do anything about it now. Uh, yep. And all we can do is learn about it and um, not do it again. <laughs> Just acknowledge that it was bad and do the best that we can. Yeah, totally. Forward. Well, uh, unless you have anything else coffee history related that was burning that you're burning to share you know i think we we kind of covered everything okay well uh thank you for joining me and thank you for listening or watching um you should be able to watch the video version of some of these episodes timing on that's a little weird but um definitely if you're listening and you want to see the video go give it a look and see if it's up uh and it should be available for you there um so thanks for listening. Uh, if, as always, for all of your coffee-related needs, please hit up seattlecoffeegear.com. Check out our YouTube and our blog and social stuff. We have uh, some cool social media stuff happening right now related to some of our retail store things. So I would check that out because uh, it's pretty neat. Very exciting time. Yeah, definitely. And uh, we will see you next episode for another episode of the Seattle Coffee Gear podcast. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs>